I think Joe is honestly selfless in that. Um, there's maybe a little bit of, of gray area in that he didn't go to jail in the end, but he, he wanted to make a world well, for it, his he family. He didn't just end up Scott Fine in the end and not go to jail. <laughs> that's, that's, right, that's okay, that's right. Welcome back, one and all, to another exciting episode of No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Yeah, welcome back to the third, yes, the third installment of Miller Month, everybody. Hope you're having a wonderful March. We've been having a wonderful March and getting to talk about all of these great plays throughout the month. Uh, the I throughout the month throughout the month through I the munchies. We got to talk about the plays as we're hungry. <laughs> exactly, that's the way that works. I realized today it was a real nice alliteration with a Miller month in March. So no, that worked. Month in March. <laughs> it turned out very well. I think. I think we, we planned ahead un, unwittingly. Well, for this third one of the month, we are talking about. Uh, one of Miller's very early plays, and that is All My Sons by Arthur Miller. All My Sons. This one is up there among the better-known Miller plays. We kind of stuck with the better-known four. There are really several more uh, full-length Arthur Miller scripts out there, but none of them, I don't think, come close to these four in terms of their popularity. After the Fall is probably fifth on that list, but the month was only four weeks long, so we did not get to After the Fall, unfortunately. Before we hop into our discussion about All My Sons, we did want to remind everybody to please go over to our Patreon and become a patron of this podcast. We need your support to do what we do. We love recording this podcast. We love talking about scripts. We love the conversations that we get to have with you all as a result of that, but Doing it is not free. It's not free of our time, and we have to buy all the scripts, and there is hosting fees and things that we have to pay in order to maintain the podcast on top of that. You can help us and support this project by going to Patreon. There's a couple different tiers of your monthly support. The lowest one is just $1. $1? $1. As we've said before, probably the trouble of going over and actually doing it is going to cause you more uh, <laughs> grief than the actual dollar out of your pocket every month will. We hope that you feel like you're getting a dollar return on your time spent with us we definitely think you are so we'd like to encourage everybody to head over to patreon and uh support the work that we're doing on no script yes indeed thank you all very much so jumping right in i'm gonna give you some context on the play just a little bit so you know when it was written and such uh it was written in 1947 by arthur miller performed at the coronet theater on broadway in new york uh in january 29th 1947 uh, I don't recognize any of the names from that production, but it was uh, directed by Elia Kazan and uh, won the New York Dramatics Critics, Cir Critics Circle Award. And uh, a number of the actors won the Tony Award for Best... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. It won the Tony Award for Best Author and the Tony Award for Best Direction of a Play in that production. There's been uh, many other productions since then, but uh, notably this year, both The West End in London and Broadway are doing a production. The Broadway production has Tracy Letts and Annette. Benning in it, and the uh, West End production includes Sally Field and Bill Pullman. So suddenly this year, it is it is back. It's really interesting. You can find interviews from when Arthur Miller was still alive, where he talks about how 
this play sort of saved his playwriting career. He had written something that ended up flopping, basically. And then he he said, well, I'm going to write one more. And if it goes badly, then I'll just know that I'm not supposed to be a playwright. And I'll do something else with my life. And the one more that he ended up writing was All My Sons. Ah, classic tale. Almost, almost crisis averted, but only just barely. <laughs> only just barely. This is the play that saved Arthur Miller's career. So that's yeah. uh, that, that's at least kind of interesting in terms of its uh, place in Arthur Miller's career. In terms of the story, it, it is about a family after World War II. And really a whole community, a whole neighborhood in the wake of World War II sort of working out together the things that happened in the past and what it means to them now in the present. Specifically, Joe and Kate Keller, they're an older couple. Joe works in manufacturing. He owns his own manufacturing company. He has a son, Chris Keller. And early in the play, we learn that they have lost a son, and I use the word lost very intentionally. They lost a son, Larry. And Larry is, like I said, lost. He's MIA during the war. War. Uh, Kate seems very insistent or, or is very convinced that Larry is out there somewhere going to come back to them. Both Chris and Joe seem to know it's now been three and a half years or something since he disappeared. They seem to know that that's not going to happen, that Larry's really dead. But the constant push and pull of Kate saying, no, he's alive and them saying, no, he's dead is one of the ongoing tensions of the play. The other tension of the play results when a character named Annie appears. Annie used to date Larry, used to go with Larry, and um, as a result of some of the things that happened, which we'll talk about, she moved away, and now she's come back to marry Chris. They they were pen pals, I guess, uh, yeah. for a while, yeah. and fell in, love, <laughs> fell in love through the quill, and yes. now they are going to get married, and Kate is very opposed to that because Annie is Larry's girl, and Annie brings with her a whole tragedy that happened because her father is in prison for something that her father and Joe were involved in during the war. Uh, Their manufacturing company sent off uh, faulty engine parts uh, for planes that they had covered up and those planes all fell out of the sky and killed a bunch of soldiers. Joe was released for that by claiming I didn't know anything about it. And Annie's father, Steve, is still rotting in prison because of it. Her brother, George, comes at one point with supposedly the truth of it all to accuse Joe of really knowing about it and and, uh, letting Steve be the patsy, be the guy who falls for the whole thing. And uh, so that's kind of the the two core tensions of the script, The, the missing or dead Larry, who knows, and the truth that Joe might be guilty of this thing which he was acquitted of uh, so many years ago of selling bad engine parts to the Air Force. Yeah, it's this beautiful uh, kind of braiding of these two families in in many different ways. It, it, it kind of reminiscent, uh, kind of reminiscent of you know almost a really Romeo and Juliet sort of thing, where it's like they, they two fall in love, but it's it's all messy because the two dads did this thing together, and it's the the accounts of what happened on that day are very subjective. Um, Joe uh, claims that he had no knowledge of what happened, but Steve, in both in court and in jail, uh, now that we find out through the play that he's t- is speaking to his son George, has a very different account of what happened. He says that Joe told him to do it. So it's all about who you believe and when the truth comes out, and it's it's very convoluted. Right, and. 
Steve maintains through the whole process that Joe told him to repair or not to repair, to cover up the broken parts of the engine pieces and send them on anyway. And Joe maintains that Steve, you know, it, it, it has always been a person who has trouble taking the blame. That's a sort of a longer discussion and that he didn't actually do it. And that's one of the kind of the core things that is revealed through the play is sort of what went on there. I'm sure we'll talk about exactly what happens. I'm interested, Jack, and starting by talking about those two plots, the plot of Larry and the plot of the broken engine parts. You know, I read this play a long time ago, uh, but I haven't read it since then. And so when I came back to it in preparation of this podcast, I had the just sheer joy of sort of reading something new. Uh, It wasn't really new. I remembered some things about it, but not enough that I wasn't surprised and interested as I went along. And so that was really fun. And one of the fun things about it was through the course of the play, trying to figure out how these two plots had anything to do with each other. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's difficult to tell at first because a lot of the first scene has to do with Larry, right? Like the tree, the, the, the big thing that is on stage, the thing that uh, could define your set is there's a tree that is grown up in the yards of the, of the, the yard of the Kellers, which is uh, Joe and Kate's last name, Joe and Kate Keller. Right. And yeah, it's the a play tree. takes place in their backyard basically, or, or perhaps their front yard. I think it's their backyard though. Cause there's like hedges. And mm-hmm. so the whole play is basically their back porch and the yard. Right, right. And that tree has blown down in a windstorm at the night. Much of the first scene is talking about uh, that significance. It's a tree that they planted in honor of Larry's death to, well, Larry's going missing to uh, commemorate that. Yeah, and, it's a uh, memorial. Yeah, and a, a way to remember him. And um, But then there's all sorts of uh, moments throughout the play where especially Kate fights very hard for this belief that Larry is uh, that Larry is alive. And so you follow that through line a lot through the play. Um, uh, through the, their neighbor Frank is an astrologer who she gets to uh, read the stars for her and tell her things about uh, the day that Larry was supposed to have died, November 25th, which comes up often. So the right, through lines yeah, are the, all The through. first act is very heavily weighted in favor of the Larry plot, so much that really the, the, the broken engine plot, which really becomes the core plot later on, gets not not much more than just a few offhand mentions yeah, until yep. really the very end of that act where it sets up the conflict of what's going to come when, when George arrives. Other than that, there's just one, you know, one offhand mention where Joe goes, oh yeah, they they thought I sold bad engine parts to him a while ago, but I didn't really mm-hmm. do that, you know, or, or something like that. It's interesting. Do you feel like the plots ever, until the letter is revealed, and the letter ultimately does tie the two plots together really devastatingly, um, until that point, some characters try to marry those two plots together to varying degrees of success. One of them is that... Right when Joe, um, right when George has left and Joe and Chris are kind of going back and forth a little bit, uh, or actually, I'm sorry, it's Joe and uh, Chris and Kate, Chris and his mother are going back and forth. And the back and forth is about whether Larry's dead or not, basically. Again, they have this conversation and this argument all the time throughout the play. And finally, Kate says, no, no, Larry's not dead and he's not dead because if he's dead, then, then Joe's dead Then Joe killed him. Then, then your father, you know, so she tries to marry this idea that Joe is guilty 
if Larry's dead, even before she knows about the letter. I'm wondering how successful that marriage really is. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree that 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 moment is is it's tough to uh, to justify that as the moment where where all the information comes out because. Uh, throughout the play, uh, when when the truth gets closer and closer to the surface, um, they keep saying over and over that Larry didn't fly the type of plane that those motors went to. So there's that, that's kind of a messy moment in terms of of them uh, kind of fusing together those two plot lines because she seems to blame Joe for his death regardless of that fact, and the letter is such a linchpin in proving that it was in fact Joe that killed him. So I don't know but, that, but not because of the engine, right? Not, I mean, not be, exactly. The yeah. letter doesn't really prove anything about Kate's supposed argument in the midst of a heated discussion, which is that well, if Larry's dead, your father killed him, and supposedly at that point she must sort of be referring to the engine parts, I guess. Yeah, that 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 is a confusing beat for me. There's also though I think I think there's a prior moment we mentioned this character already where the the plots kind of fuse and that's George when George crashes into the set that's another moment where it all fuses together because you have the plot line running through of of uh, of them talking about Larry and his death. Well, maybe it doesn't connect to Larry. Dang it, you have me no, confused. No, it doesn't it really. Doesn't. George comes and he sort of takes over the bulk of the plot in regards to uh, Joe's uh, crime of the of the engine parts. But and that the love story of Annie and uh, right. Chris. And, and Annie is a character that sort of brings the Larry plot into the rest of the plot. But it's an odd sort of parallel plots that then yeah. finally, finally come together at the end of the script. And it's it's a really interesting thing because at times as I was reading to it, and actually I listened to a great audio production by LA Theater Works, um, which you can buy for $5. You're all welcome to do that. It was great. Um, and so I listened to it as well. And as I'm listening to it and reading it, as I go along this first time, I'm thinking, hey, what is, why? It seems like we're doing two things things here a play about a missing or dead son and a play about the crime of a father in years past and it felt very odd how are these two things really gonna line up yeah and then it just pays off at the end i think you're right it's a huge payoff at the end yeah yeah incredible yeah i think it's we've talked about the subtext of miller's writing before and uh, i think this serves as this like sometimes subtext that ends up kind of peeking out every once in a while throughout the play. And it's always boiling that you get the sense that it is always on Chris and Joe's mind that Kate believes that Larry is still alive. And especially Chris, it's hampering his ability to move forward in life. He's in love with Kate. And no, 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 no. He's in love with Annie. That's a different Greek play. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's in love with Annie, and Kate won't uh, a- accept that Larry is gone, and that would allow Kate to be in love with Chris in return. No, no, Annie to be in love with Chris Dang in return. <laughs> <laughs> I need like yeah, a so, diagram. So because Annie is Larry's girl from years past, they were together, um, and that that possessive language obviously is rooted in the whole history of sexism of the time, and there's a lot of that in this script, just sort of point blank. Um, that, that sort of, that is the culture in which the script and the story is told. So that's there. But because Annie and Larry used to go together and they used to be sweethearts, Kate is insistent, dead insistent that these two that that Annie and Chris don't get together. 
because, and, and Joe, I think, does a good job in kind of bringing to the surface what, what it, what's true underneath, which is that if Chris and Annie get married, it's as good as pronouncing Larry dead. Yeah, mm-hmm. especially in the minds of, in the mind of Kate, who who is is just so fixated on it. It would be it, the, throughout the play. There are a n- number of different moments where a death knell could be dealt to Larry, and uh, and and it seems like he Joe is kind of this running block in front of all of those moments that could come about because it is always boiling under the surface that what will happen when and if she finally accepts that Larry is dead. Well, she tells us what will happen. Yeah. At the very beginning of the play, when they're they're starting to need at her a little bit and say, you know, Larry's really dead, Ma. And she, she has this sort of uh, reaction where she finally says, no, I, he can't be dead because if he's dead, I'll just kill myself. She, she, you know, she claims she won't live through the loss, the true uh, acknowledgement that her son is actually dead. While we're there, I think that Kate, Kate is a puzzling character to me. Do you feel like, Jackson, we ever get a clear indication of what exactly is wrong with her? She's suffering from some sort of illness, mental illness, perhaps physical illness, perhaps something like Alzheimer's or dementia. The doctor several times mentions how, you know, with what she's got, it's not good for her to be out here. They're all the time talking about how their mother is frail and sick. Um, and she's clearly suffering some sort of, you know, depression and failure to grasp reality as a result of losing her son. She has all these terrible dreams. We know that, but there seems to be some sort of physical, uh, maybe even just physical brain, uh, or physical body, something that she's going through alongside, which puts her a little bit at odds with reality much of the time. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. They, They don't really, there isn't really a definition of it, but I do get the sense, especially from the doctor, who we haven't talked much about, but their neighbor is Dr. Jim Bayless. Um, And he mentions, you're right, more than once, she's like out late. And he's like, this is what, what for what she has, this is not good for her. Well, and the emotional turmoil, I think he's referencing too. All mm-hmm. of this is not good for her in the state that she's in. And then, of course, the the doctor is married. The doctor, one of the neighbors, is married to a nurse, another one of the neighbors. And the mm-hmm. nurse comes over and sort of references going up to give her a bunch of medicine. So yeah. there's also a sense that she's like on some sort of medication for whatever it is that is going on with Kate. Yeah, but then like the rest of the play, she seems very okay. Does like, she? It's, wait, she well, with seems the exception. Pretty- she seems pretty out of touch with reality a lot of times. One one classic example, George has finally arrived and everybody knows what George is there for. George has come from the prison where he saw his dad, who uh, the audience is beginning to suspect maybe falsely in prison due to the result of something that Joe did. And Joe shows up and uh, Kate finally comes out on the porch and Chris says something like, okay, Joe, or George, I mean, okay, George, no arguing while you're here. And Kate just goes, well, why would we argue? George doesn't have any arguments with us, do you, George? <laughs> yep, yep. I I don't know, man. I think that I, I read those moments as as this way that she was she is the keeper of the secret 
in the end. Like she more than Joe, she tells Joe, you have to be careful. You need to be, you, you, you keep playing way too fast and loose with this stuff. You need to lock it down because George is coming and George is intelligent. George will get it out of you. He's a lawyer. He will get the secret out of you. I think she is very good at obfuscating and being able to to put on this face in front of people. She believes in, she just has decided to believe that Joe is good and she will stick to that no matter what. And she creates the world around her. Maybe the delusion is that she has convinced herself. But I I read those scenes yeah, as, I don't, as... I don't think she's convinced herself. She's, yeah. She... I mean, there are other moments too, right? Like this running insistence that everybody knows in their hearts that Larry mm. is really alive. Despite the fact that they'll say it time and time again, we don't, we've clearly moved on, you're the only one who still believes this. She lives in this reality where everybody really, really in their hearts, they really agree with me. <laughs> uh-huh, yep, yep. And she, I mean, she she ascribes a lot to symbolism. She uh, she talks about the tree falling down on the night that Annie comes back as a pretty poignant symbol um, and 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 reason for why Annie and Chris should not be together. She has her neighbor Frank, as I mentioned before, searching through astrology to try to figure out the um, whether it was an appropriate day for Larry to die on the day that they think he died. Um, but I don't. I don't know. Does that necessarily? Uh, does that preclude, or or does that necessitate her having something wrong with her? Those well, things. I, I mean, I, I think we know. know she has something wrong with her. So the question <laughs> is, what elements of her behavior can we ascribe to some sort of illness, which which actually physically in her brain causes her to lose touch with reality at times, and and what can we ascribe to? Uh, power moves, you know, uh, situations in which she is pretending to have uh, less of a grasp on reality than she really does or pretends to sort of forge her own reality around her. I mean, one of the things that also could be true is that she might, I mean, and this this maybe is a good debate. Rather than saying it, let me ask it. Does she know that Larry's dead before the letter? She accuses everybody else of knowing in their heart of hearts that Larry is alive. So the ac- let's point the accusation back at her. Does she sure. know in her heart of hearts, deep down in her soul, does she know that Larry's dead? No. <laughs> no? Okay, that's interesting. I mean, we've certainly I- seen that she has the tools to to bully a reality into existence where he's not dead um, even if she knows that right the way that she interacts with George is great evidence of this knowing what the situation really is with George the danger that he poses the the anger that he really harbors she manages somehow to create a world where he's 10 again right. and wants to sit on her porch and and laugh and and talk to Joe like he's a he's a second dad and drink grape <laughs> yep. juice I mean she manages to forge an entirely new reality out of <laughs> a terrible <everyone>. situation. <laughs> yeah. So we know yep. she's got the tools to do that. Yep. <laughs> so why not? Why what 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 in what causes you to believe that she actually does believe Larry's alive? I think that there are there are two uh, kind of one of her rants that really stand out in my mind. And uh, I too listened to the uh, version that you listened to, Jacob, and and maybe it's just, I listened to it twice, it is a beautiful version, and maybe it's just the actress and the way that she portrayed it that's sticking in my mind so much. But 
there, the, there are two moments that really stand out to me. The first is the end when she gets the letter. And that's a, a huge, uh, she has a very visceral breakdown after that, where she she's she she reacts quickly. She's trying to guard uh, other people from reading it. She doesn't want the reality shattered uh, for for anyone else and the horrible ramifications as well. Right, that so could come from it. One possible view of the letter scene would be. Uh, it's not that she finally has to accept that Larry's dead that is so crushing, although I'm sure that that is part of it. But what the letter contains is the... I don't know that we've said this. So the letter that Annie brings that she's been hiding all these years, which we should talk about whether she should have been hiding that letter or not, but she has <laughs> been hiding the letter all these years, apparently, is basically a suicide note from Larry, which says, I read in the newspaper what my father did by selling those faulty engine parts and killing all those soldiers. I read it in the newspaper what he did. I can't stand to live anymore. What a terrible person. Uh, I'm, I'm going to fly on a mission. They're going to report me missing. I want you to move on. Goodbye, Annie. It's a love suicide note to her. And so she's had this all these years. So finally, in one of the climactic scenes of the play, Annie gives this to um, to Kate to say, look, you have to let Chris and I get married. Larry is dead. There's nothing we can do. We have to be able to move on. Plus, there's all this other stuff with Joe going on. So she gives her the letter, and this is the scene you're talking about. So one thought is it's the ramifications of the letter on 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 Joe and and the and the fact that Joe actually is responsible for Larry's death um that that causes such an emotional uh you know such a such a heartbreaking reaction sure that, that she's that she is just so focused on being the shield from Joe uh, of that information that she just kicks into that gear, or, or that not even the possible. shield. I mean, even even without Joe and the even without considering how Joe is going to feel, if you're a mother and you read a, a suicide note which says "Dad made me do it," that's distressing. <laughs> even just for you, you know that that contains a lot of heartbreak and pain for you, which could be part of uh, you know what what she's experiencing there. But but I think maybe what you're saying is that the the pain and crushing loss that she experiences at that letter might indicate that she really is she really did believe Larry was alive and now he isn't. Yeah, I think it's it's it, I mean it's hard to say exactly, but I think it does stem from that 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 she has believed so fully until now in the face of so many other things. The other scene that stands out in my head is the scene where she's surrounded by people who finally are saying to her I believe in my heart that he is dead. You're wrong. I believe in my heart. And she responds with, if you believe it in your heart, then it must be true or something along those lines. And in the face of their belief in their heart, she resides, she states that she in her heart believes that Larry is still alive. I think the letter brings about something that is too concrete for her to deny and she is also afraid of its ramifications if it is shown to anyone else. So it's it's two things hitting at once, these this dual fear and life-alteringness of the letter brings about that reaction. Right, and, and she's the first victim of the letter. Like we've talked about, the letter is the cross paths of the two plot lines. It ties together this guilt, this terrible thing that Joe has done and managed to get away with, with the fact that Larry disappeared and what happened to Larry. And she's the first chess piece to fall in that uh, you know terrible drama that unfolds as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that that letter for me for this this okay. So this play, 
I feel I could end at act two. I was feeling emotional after act two, <laughs> which is the act that it finally comes out that Joe admits that he was responsible for the cracked motor heads getting shipped out. He admits it to Chris, at least. And Chris runs off, and uh, the, the there's some beautiful lines in that scene, and then they part. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay. That's the end of the play, and life ends for them. Um, <laughs> but no, it just keeps getting worse in Act 3. Um, right, because if it ends at Act 2, the, the, the thread of... What what in the world was all this stuff about Larry about? I mean, at the end of Act Two, I think you can pretty easily say, why would you even include the stuff about Larry in the play? I mean, it's interesting, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the main conflict, which ends up being about Joe's guilt or innocence and whether he's going to be facing consequences now that George, who's a lawyer, is on the hunt to find who's responsible for keeping his dad in prison and and lock them up. So now that George is out and prowling, what's going to happen to Joe? That becomes the main, the main weight. But Arthur Miller says... No, hold on. I'm going to add one more layer on top, which is he's not just guilty for killing 21 random soldiers. And believe me, that's bad enough. Right. But he's not just guilty of that. He's also guilty of killing his own son. Mm Mm-hmm. Which asks the question, not just what's going to happen to Joe, what's going to happen to this family? Yes. (laughs) Right. And and how, I mean, at the end of Act 2... The question is is looming. How can anyone move on from this point? Right. Yeah. And, and I think what's beautiful, at the, as you said at the end of Act 2, that's the question. Then you see what happens when everyone comes back together again. And, and it's, not, it's not just this, you know, it's not a messy tendrils leading off in, into, the, into the ether of, of the rest of their lives. We get to see the, the, the horrible cataclysm of what happens when they all come back together again. And of course, when the family comes back together, they don't yet know, or or at least when Annie and Joe and Kate meet together, they don't yet know the reality of what is contained in the letter. So let's talk about Annie and this letter. She apparently receives it back when Larry was right when he went missing. I suppose he wrote it, put it in the mail, and then went missing. And then a few days later or a week later or whatever, she gets it in the mail. And then for three and a half years, she knows that the Kellers think that their son is missing and may or may not come back. And she has in her hands the proof and she does not tell them. (laughs) Now, to Arthur Miller's credit, if that were the only reality, then she would be the bad guy. You know what I mean? You can't (laughs) do that. But he he creates a very complex situation where to reveal what is in the letter is cataclysmic to the Keller family. So it's not as easy as just, uh, look, I have this letter, he was dead. It's, uh, I have this letter, by the way, I'm going to destroy your whole life if I show you what's in this letter. But what do you make of that, that she keeps it all these years? Yeah. Annie is such an interesting character in that she is pulled in so many directions in this play. She has allegiances all over the place and bridges that she is intentionally burned, that she is trying to keep burned, but keeps trying to poke at her. Um, and and so, so she has her father, right? Her father, Steve, who she has cut out of her life because of his perceived guilt. Um, she, she, she hates him for it. She hates that he is in prison as a result of it. Um, and, and all the ramifications on the, on, on their life. 
she's very tied to the Kellers. She has a lot of good memories of this block and this neighborhood as she is reminiscing and 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 that's all tied up in her love, her previous love for Larry, who was uh, her sweetheart. Right, but then and she... they all grew up together is kind of what we learned. Yeah. That from, from the time they were kids, she was running around in the Keller's house, and she and Larry eventually get together. And so she's, like, like many of the other people on this block, including Frank, including Lydia, you know, these people, including George, these people are all like an extended family. I never lived in a neighborhood that was very much like that, where, like the whole neighborhood is sort of one community. Right. But you can kind of imagine what that would be like, where ev- you know everybody. Eh? Your kids are everybody's kids. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think I think one possible explanation for why she didn't show the letter is just the the complicatedness of both of their parents being in court when she received the letter. Both of the fathers were in court and both were convicted the first time around, which means they were in jail probably around the same time that she got this letter. So that moment, what a moment to reveal that that their oldest son killed themselves because of what the father did. So in that moment, in my mind, that excuses that moment, right? Like, yeah, it is It is hard to imagine how she ever could have revealed the contents of the letter knowing what it would do to Joe and Chris mm-hmm. and Kate to know that Larry killed himself because of what he thought Joe did. It's hard to imagine how she could have done that. And yet, there's also the truth that Kate has gone three years thinking that Annie still believed Larry was alive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, what about a phone call? What about Annie <laughs> calling and saying, you know... I don't think Larry's alive. I've thought about it. He's not alive. <laughs> he's, he's dead. Don't you? I, I want you, you know, Kate's, she says, you know, her faith in the fact that Larry is still alive is at least in part related to Annie's supposed faith that Larry's still alive for three and a half years. Mm-hmm. And this whole time she really has known. Yep, yep. That that's true. That's true. That's that's a hard one. But also, there's. A, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep trying here. I'll keep trying. Also, right away at the start of the play, uh, within the first scene, the first scene that Chris and Joe are alone, Chris says, "We might have done a bad thing in keeping this from her, in keeping the fact that Larry is most likely dead from the mother Kate." And so, so I can see a world where Joe and Chris have been playing block. So even if the thought had occurred to Annie to tell um, Kate that she thinks this, the people that she's been talking to are Chris, who likely has been talking about how it, it it's so hard to continue living with Kate in this delusion that she has. So it, to, to kind of fly in the face of what she knows as Joe and Chris keeping up this front to try to preserve the sanity of Kate is is kind of a hard thing to try to drop in with oh by the way I, I don't I don't believe it anymore right yeah and and to their credit Chris and Joe like you said accept some blame for that in the in one of their very first scenes like like you mentioned they talk about how you know we we've really been playing long and now we've built this into mom's reality her habits her core beliefs about the world and so now we're stuck and we don't know what to do and at some level that is our fault and and i think they recognize that and of course 
Kate's deep-rooted belief, uh, whether she believes in her soul of souls or not, is uh, a larger question, perhaps. But this perceived belief that Larry is coming back extends all the way until that very climactic scene at the end of Act 2, when Chris says, you know, we've got to move on. Annie and I have got to be married. And and Kate says, no, you're never going to do that. We're waiting for Larry. You're going to wait for Larry. And Chris says, how long? How long? And Kate says, till he comes back. Yeah. No end date in sight. Mm-hmm. So that that reality that she bullies into existence we've talked about is an is a reality that she's going to imagine extends forever till right. he comes back. Yeah. So that's that's she even continues it with Kate too in the next scene she says even even though Annie. you might Dang it. I'm going to do that this whole time. Uh, she even says that to Annie in in later on in the in the next act she talks about even if you were to marry him, he will always know deep down that Larry is alive somewhere and that what you you have together is wrong. So Again, trying to will that to be true. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't get any indication from the script that either Joe or Chris at any part of their soul really believes Larry is alive. You know, yeah. I, I, and so that that's one of those things where Kate's perception or um, desire conflicts with the reality as it is. There are some reality pieces floating around. One notable one is the newspaper, which everyone keeps uh, being annoyed at. The newspaper comes in and tells stories of people who have been lost in the war for a longer amount of time turning up. Um, as uh, afterwards in like Detroit, they talk about someone showed up after four years, um, of being missing. So there's these odd little corroborating piece of evidence. Um, <laughs> Frank doesn't help by, uh, bringing over his, um, analysis of the astrology, um, of, 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 um, of Larry's day, his, what's, what's it called? Like his, his favorable day. Yeah. His favorable day. He does. Uh, Larry's horoscope, and according to the horoscope, November 25th, the day that Larry disappeared, was a favorable day. So he, I think he says the odds are a million to one that he would have di- died on that day. No, he's still alive. Yeah, so she's surrounded by people and things happening that are saying that he is alive as well. It's not, you know, to she... The, to the desperate. I mean, to the, <laughs> she's, she's surrounded by things that if you were inclined to believe that... Right, Might right. suggest, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but still, it corroborates. It's, it, <laughs> so. it, it, and, and that's what Joe says in the beginning too, right? He says, what proof do you have? And, and Chris says, he's been gone for three and a half years. Nobody comes back after that long. And Joe says, that doesn't matter to her. That's not proof to her. What proof do you have that she will believe? You don't have any. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, you wait all the way to the end. She she fights all the way to the end on that one. And then and then it's the letter. Again, the letter that 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 proves to her that he he cannot come back anymore. Let's talk about Chris now, shift our focus a little bit. Chris has some really interesting experience. So like many of the other men, he is coming back from the war. 
It's been a few years now since he's been in combat, um, and he has some experiences from the war that have kind of informed a worldview. People talk about Chris as being sort of idealistic. He sort of uh, imagines the best in everybody or inspires the best in everybody, even if it ends up not being for their own good. Um, the, the, the woman who's married to the doctor character actually says that she wants Chris to move away because every time her husband hangs out with Chris, he wants to go like do medical research in small towns for no money because that's right. the kind of person that Chris is. Where does some of this come from, Jackson? We know some of his backstory about what happened to him in the war. Do you want to talk about that a little? Yeah, so he uh, admits to Anne in in one of the scenes that he was in command of a, a unit in the war and he lost all of them in a in a terrible fight and and he talks about this world that he perceived while he was fighting there, a world where people sacrificed for something and the sacrifice was what they sacrificed for, if that makes sense. It was the idea that you don't turn around, you have people's back, you're responsible for other people, and that responsibility drives you to do incredible things, even ultimately self-sacrificing things that, that, that enact that world, that, that purer world that he sees. And then he talks right, about- Right, and it's, it's that belief, I love the way you put that, that you sacrifice for each other, you're responsible for each other, and not just the people that you're blood with, but the people that you are with in battle, your brothers, your friends, the people around, just the people around you. Just humanity, you, yeah. Humanity, you put your life on the line and give something for. And he says, this that sort of- worldview, that sort of perception, that um, idea was at the core of what these men were fighting for, that they were there for, that they learned as part of the world of the war, World War II. And when they came back, they discovered that nobody else thought the war meant anything. In -hmm. fact, I, I love this imagery. He says, when I got back, I realized that Everybody else that weren't that weren't actually in the war, all these people who were back at home, just thought it like it was like some terrible bus accident. It was yeah. just sort of a chance of fate. Oh, a terrible thing to look at, but not anything to learn from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and that I, I love that imagery too. It so it very visualizes it for you and the the, the removal of folks from that. And he I mean, he he has backstory in this too. They talk about uh, Kate talks about how he and George were like scouts, and they have this these rules that they followed, and um and 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 so he has he he has this this strong through line that when he comes back from the war, he does not see the world enacting his beliefs around him, but. And, Who is well, the one and, that- and, it, and it relates to the war profiteering too, right? Because he talks about when I came back, I realized that all these people had made money off the war and my dad had made money off the war. And now we have fancy cars and fancy houses. And he says, you know, I feel sort of weird driving around in this fancy car that was really funded by the death of all these people that I loved. But he says, what I realize is that when I look at these cars, it's okay if I drive this car. It's okay if I have this money and it's okay if other people do too because what it inspires us to do is to be better it says the car isn't just about the money it represents the sacrifice it Mm -hmm. makes us better as we think about what this you know this i think he says something like you know the car was funded by the love a man can have for another man 
the yeah. sacrifice, the responsibility. That's what built this car, really, this fancy stuff I have. And so that will inspire me and hopefully other people to be better. Mm-hmm. And and that that worldview that he's constructed around that centers around his dad, centers around Joe, who he has decided to believe that he did not, uh, ha- he was not responsible for shipping out the the uh, cracked motor heads, and that he was back here helping everyone out at the war fight to the best of their abilities. He was a part of the communal sacrifice, a part of this world that everyone was working together, which is why it is such a rip out the rug moment when he, when that begins to start crumbling down. Cause whether or not, again, we're using this heart of hearts analogy, whether or not in the heart, his heart of hearts, he fully believed um, that Joe had, was not responsible for what happened. He built a world where he did. And he told other people that he did. And other people built a world around his belief that Joe was innocent. George believed Joe because Chris did, he says. Right. And there's this running commentary that lots and lots of, of the characters reference it, which basically says, well... We know that there can't be anything wrong with what Joe is doing because Chris wouldn't be involved with it if there's anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Probably two to four characters say that at some point throughout the play. This idea that Joe, Chris wouldn't be involved if there was anything negative about it. And and then, unfortunately, Chris, his belief that there's nothing bad about it is, is a result of Joe's belief that there's nothing bad about it. He <laughs> believes, well, they're, they're, this, this is all good. It's fine. It's clean because my dad says it is. And he would do something about it if it weren't. And what he learns is his dad was not the honest person that he thought he was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah, just I- that he made this mistake and this terrible thing happened. But he he lied about it and made money off of it for years afterwards, and ruined his partner's life as a result. Right. Was okay, was okay with that sacrifice that that he just dropped it all on Steve, who was locked away forever. And 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 th- I mean that's not the worst part for Chris. I think the worst part for Chris is that he killed people and doesn't seem to have any regret about it. Right. And and what's Joe's response? I love it. it so at the end of Act Two is Chris has it. Uh, Joe has admitted that I did it. Um, uh, yes, it was me. Sorry. It was, it, I, you know, whatever. He, he says all things. And Chris has basically collapsed emotionally. I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you did this. Blackout. Then Act 3 begins and Chris has disappeared. And eventually he comes back and he hasn't read the letter yet. And I love what Joe says. He walks out and he, and he says something like, uh, Chris, what's the matter with you? I want to talk to you. What's the matter? Come over here. What's the matter? You you have too much money? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. Yeah. That's so that's such a brilliant piece of writing to come out and, and make it accusatory and, and paint Chris as the recipient of this blood money too. Right. It's it's a subtle, simple, understated, really passive aggressive way to say you're responsible too. You mm-hmm. benefited too. What, you got too much money? Yeah. Give it away then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and the scene before too, there's so much, imbo- 
there's so much weight that he throws onto Chris with, I did it all for you. And, and, and that's, that's part of the core of, I think, why Chris breaks so much is because he's saying it's all on you as well. There's also the incredible response that, that he gets to eventually where uh, Joe points to everyone else who profited from the war and, and made shortcuts to, to bring it about. And, and, and Chris says, yeah, I know that happened. And Joe asks him, why does so then why does that make me bad? Oh, no, no, no. It's even simpler than that. It might be my favorite line in the whole play. After all this, Joe goes on about other people made money off of it too. I was just doing what other people did. I didn't want them to destroy my business. They were yelling and screaming for all these parts. They didn't know what to do. Da 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 da. He goes on and on. And then it's just this simple, heartbreaking line. Why am I bad? Mm, yeah. Why am I bad? Yeah. That is that is crushing mm-hmm. to hear this old man who really I believe that Joe Joe exists on the good opinion of his son just as much as Chris exists on the good opinion of his father. It's yeah. such a it's such a it's almost incestuous. It's so codependent <laughs> the two of them. And and other characters talk about that all play long. How much these two love each other, how close they are, this father and son. And then to see this broken old man say, "Why am I bad?" Yeah. Mhm. And then the re- then the response equally heartbreaking from from uh, Chris is that because you weren't just other people, you were my dad. And and that the world that he constructed around him of that 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 world where everyone's fighting for each other was so centered on his dad in turn. And 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 just just both of them. I, I love that that scene. There are so many good moments between those two, but that is one of the ones that stands out to me in this play of these two people who are trying so hard at their own worlds and they just can't with each other anymore. It's tough. Well, and the collision course between them, even if the events of the play hadn't transpired exactly like this, the collision course between Chris and Joe was long coming. We know that Chris isn't happy with what he's doing. We know that he's got some serious doubts about things like war profiteering, etc. But ultimately, the collision was inevitable because of the contrasting worldviews, right? We've talked about Chris because of his experiences in the war. He believes that we have a responsibility for everyone, a whole world out there of people that we're responsible to, that we ought to put our lives on the line for, that we ought to be there. You know, he describes the men in his battalion. He says, they killed themselves for each other. And then he says, no, I mean that literally. If they had been selfish, they'd still be alive. They killed themselves for each other. And that's where he comes from. And Jackson, can you can you uh, uh, wax poetic a little bit about what what's the Joe worldview? Oh man! Well, his worldview is a very family-centric worldview. Right. He'll, he'll kill anyone for his family, <laughs> um, and 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 Chris views that as selfish. I think, and 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 it's so sad because it comes from something so selfless. I think. I think Joe is honestly selfless in that. Um, there's maybe a little bit of, of gray area in that he didn't go to jail in the end, but he he wanted to make a world well, for it, his he family. He didn't just end up Scott Fine in the end and not go to jail. <laughs> that's, that's, right, that's okay. That's right. <laughs> but he did all this, he claims, because he wanted to make a world for 
Chris and for Kate that was good, that that was the fullest of of what he could make from his business. And um, it's just it's just so I think you're right that these two paths eventually, unless, you know, just time passed would would collide because they are so. It, it, they they have different goals in the end. One is one is focused on the world and what the best that can be for the most amount of people, and one is very uh, focused inward at at well, ma- maybe not themselves, a, but at the world. It's a at, good representation too of, of the thing that Arthur Miller does so well, which is he writes about these very specific stories, but also have these huge, broad social movements in mind too. Right, the Crucible, this sort of movement between uh, theocracy and um, you know uh, affairs and rational and uh, logic-based judgment, things like that. The view from the bridge, this sort of old world versus new world values. And then in this one, he talks about, it's almost a moment in history, right? Arthur Miller imagines this older group of people, Joe, the Joes and Cates, who come from the Depression, who come from a world in which your family, your, you know, Joe actually says, you know, your life ends at the property line. These are the people who you take care of because if you take care of anybody else, we're going to die. Yeah. That's the world they grew up in. And Arthur Miller writes about this group of young men that came back from the war and said, there's something else. There's a bigger story. There's more that we're responsible for than just that. And he connects this this sort of movement in America of what, what America started to uh, feel and struggle with after the, the World War II. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, yeah, the, the the connection of America to to the world in general and it, and its role had to do with with the role that it it had during the war and 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 you you get that really jarring sense from Chris that it that it is is not aligning as he comes back and and from the other people I think I think you're right in that the other people around him echo that as well George has has a similar um, uh, need to bring this to light now. Uh, he goes to his father for the first time in forever and comes back at shattering his beliefs in a day to try to do the right thing, um, the, the, to bring the truth to light. And I, I agree that it's, again, a generational thing that these guys bring back. with them. Well, and, and Miller even writes in a character that didn't experience the things that they experienced in the war, <laughs> right, Frank, right? right? Yeah. Who grew up with all of them, but kind of got lucky based on his birthday or something about not having to be in the draft. And so yeah. Kate talks about how, oh, you guys had all these philosophies and these ideas and you went off to war to fight the good fight. And Frank stayed home and now he's got three kids. He paid off his house, but he's adult. Right. You know, he's painted as this sort of airhead who's into astronomy and, right. uh, you know, all these sort of odd things. And he's got this sort of goofy family life where he's got, oh, three kids popped out, one, two, three, and his wife is having trouble making the toaster work right. right, right all right. these sort of goofy, odd, I don't have a, a real sense of conviction or right or wrong is sort of th- this character <laughs> that is painted in stark contrast to yeah. Chris's and the George's. Definitely. I want to talk about the other neighbor as well, as long as we're talking about neighbors. Um, the, the doctor is a very interesting character. Dr. Uh, Jim, oh, what's his last name? Jim Bayless. Um, he He's a very interesting character. He's in and out throughout the play. He also went to war. He took over the house that uh, he and his wife moved into the house that Annie and George grew up in, which was right next door uh, to the Kellers. And um, 
the the scene that I really want to talk about his is the scene after Chris leaves. Um, Chris finds out that uh, Joe was responsible. He storms off. And the first scene of the next act is this scene with Kate on the deck and Jim comes over. And they're they're talking about the tree and about Chris. He lets uh he lets her know that he knows that Joe did it, that he put it together a while ago, and uh and he speaks into this situation. It's some some really poignant stuff about how he and Chris are kind of similar in that they will come back, that 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 they 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 are good people and and so they will continue to commit to their families even though occasionally they have their worlds broken as a part of it and and yeah he he kind of sets up one of the core concessions of the play or one of the core ideas of the play which is that in order to live in the world at least some people think you end up having to give away some of your values you end up having to concede. Uh, 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 Chris says it in terms of being practical. You know, he yeah. says, uh, now I'm not a human anymore with beliefs and things that I stand for. Now I'm practical. And the practical reality that he's talking about is that he's not going to send his father to jail. Even though he thinks he deserves it, even though he's angry, all he's going to do is run away. He, he's not going to be the one that puts his dad in jail. And so he's, he's had to give up a core sense of right and wrong. And in this case, you know, what he's really forced to give up on is a broader human responsibility. The thing mm-hmm. that Chris cares so deeply about. What does he decide? At, not, not at the very end, but at, at the right before <laughs> the end when he comes back, he decides, I'm going to, I have to choose family over society, family over broader responsibility. So I'm not going to send my dad to prison. So I've, I've given up. I've become I've become practical. Right. You've you've stolen that from me. Um and 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 Jim kind of names that before he says I I wish he wouldn't come back because that would uh show off that he's not going to cave, but everyone makes the concession. Everyone concedes in the end compromises are made, I think is what he what he says and uh and 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 he he wishes that 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 the the star of innocence or whatever could could last longer in the world. Yeah, that that's a little it, that one gets a little cheesy for me, the star of honesty that <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. all supposedly pursuing. <laughs> uh, admittedly there are some there's some rough things in the play, things that maybe uh you know, this was one of his first real commercial successes. <laughs> we're going like one of the odd things is that George like suddenly believes the story that he already knew just because right. he heard his dad tell it in person. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, he maybe could have worked something out where like there was sure, new information sure. that he didn't have before. That that seems a little bit odd. Um, yep. But man, I, I I just had such a gr- uh, an emotional, visceral experience participating in this play. I'd like to talk as maybe, it looks like it'll probably be our final kind of subject around the conversation about the title. Mm-hmm. All My Sons. Yeah. Um, I think that when you first hear the title, here's here's what I think grammatically you would think the title is referencing. All my sons. You think that the correct grammar that's being uh, condensed is all of my sons. Right. Like I have a bucket of marbles. These are all of my marbles. Right. All of my sons. All the sons that I have, all of them, all my sons. But that is not what ends up being the the core of where that title comes from. Do you want to tell us, Jackson, where to, what does the title actually reference? 
The title references the line where uh, Joe discovers that Larry killed himself over over his his deeds um, and chipping out the motorheads, and uh, he he said. He says that I guess Larry thought that all the boys, all the boys who died in the planes, all the soldiers, all of them were my sons. They were all my sons, um, and that that like that the care for them should have been the same for that that it was for his birth sons. It's I don't know. It's impossible to know if Arthur Miller knew the kind of in- trick of English that he was going to play on audiences. But that is one of, to me, that's one of the more effective uses of the title actually appearing in the script that I've ever come across. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it evolves so beautifully in that in that moment. You're, you're surprised by it. You know, I, I agree that, that uh, looking at it, you think about, if, if you were to do a quick analysis, like based on Wikipedia, um, you would think that it would, the title works. It is a play about all of his sons and the ramifications of both of them. Um, however, it, it, it the guilt about about the guilt that drives the the shame that drives at the end is about something so much bigger than just his family unit. It's about that struggle of the world versus the right. family. Right. What ends up happening is that the play on English that occurs in the title as you would immediately perceive it, and then the title as it's used in the script, ends up being a reflection of one of the major themes, the yeah. responsibility of an individual to just your family, all of your family, all of your sons equally, versus a broader responsibility, i.e., all of you, all of humanity, you are all my children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's got, it's got to be intentional, right? That, I, that I, I honestly <laughs> don't know. I mean, it, it, that, that was a hard one to know exactly if he realized what he was doing. But it comes across so well to yeah. hear Joe just sort of stumble through, I guess he thought they were all my sons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that, that scene is just, gosh... Every time something, I, I, this this is this might be the first time I read this play. If if I'm if I'm being honest, I don't think I read it much at all in in college. I think I may have read a scene from it or something in 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 one of my classes. But this is the first time I read this play, and I was not expecting the end. I was not expecting him to go upstairs and end his life. Right. <laughs> like so that, what ends up happening in sort of a. An, an odd parallel to Death of a Salesman, which we'll talk about next week, is that as a result of this heartbreaking news, Joe learns in the final climactic argument of the play that Larry killed himself because of what Joe did. Joe then stumbles out. He says, I'm going to go get my jacket and you you get the car. And what's the implication of that? Do we think he's saying? He, he thinks he's, we think he's saying that, okay, you can take me to jail. You win. I, I, I'll go with you. Right. Because this nobody is... really knows what's going to happen now that Chris knows, uh, right. whether Chris is going to come back and actually take him to jail is sort of an outstanding question. We learn basically that he's not mm-hmm. until the letter is, is revealed to Chris and to Joe at that point. And then I think the implication you're right is, is Joe saying, I'm going to go get my jacket uh, and I, I should go to jail. I deserve to be in jail right now. But he doesn't do that. He goes in and Kate and Joe and Kate, or, uh, Chris and Kate have uh, another one of the beautiful exchanges of the play, which is Kate basically says, you can't do this to him. 
You cannot do this to him. He will die in prison. Do you want him to die? I'll die without him. And Chris says, what are you talking about? You not, You just learned that he killed Larry. Larry, you've been waiting for all this time. He killed him. What do you mean? What did Larry mean to you? And I love Kate's response. It hits, It strikes such a gong in me. She in the in the audio production I heard, she sort of ends up screaming it desperately. She just screams, "The war is over!" Oof! It's like what a simple. It's another one of those sort of simple core. It's it's like something screaming from the core. You know, it's like when Joe says, "Why am I bad?" It comes from something deeper than just the tactics of the scene. It comes from that inner life. It's, the war is over. Things are different now. It yeah. doesn't work like it did back then. He's your father. Things are done. It can go back. We can we can right. go back. Because yeah. we, we didn't really end up in our conversation talking much about one of the other sort of uh, themes that weaves throughout the script, which is this idea that things are not what they used to be. Mm-hmm. That come that that really is a, one of the larger discussions of the play. That the war has changed things. The things that have gone on in this family have changed things. We can never really go back to what used to be, but we're going to try. Mm-hmm. And Kate is one of the big ones who tries throughout the whole thing, serving grape juice to George when he comes over and reminiscing, trying to reset things, get 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 George a girl so that he can be around, and all of that. So yeah. It's, it's another one of those Kate things where she's trying to sort of will her reality, which is that right. none of right. this ever happened. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. None of this ever happened. But she's forced at the end. I think war, the war is over is also sort of a concession, right? The war happened. Mm-hmm. The war is over. You don't, you don't owe allegiance to those soldiers anymore. Mm-hmm. That conflict is done. You owe allegiance to your father. Yeah. And gosh, what do you think about the last line with Kate then? It's such a, oh, so it's kind of a sacrificing line. Or it really depends, I think, on, on how you would end up playing it. The audio production that we both listen to plays it fairly straight. Do you want to talk maybe about what, what, would, what the subtext is of the production we heard? And then I'm going to maybe provide an alternate subtext. Sure. Um, the, I, I would say I experienced it as a pretty quick moment of caretaking on Kate's part. She very quickly says, don't take this on yourself. Forget it now. Get out of here. You're free. Um, it's okay. Um, this isn't on you, basically. Um, and and she, she, she tries to remove the guilt from Chris that, that, that this spurring on in the moment has brought about. Right. Yeah. It's it's very emotional. It's sort of consoling. It's you, you have to learn to forget about this. Um, you have to be able to move on, which seems odd Quick. right after it happened. <laughs> yeah, and and but, that yeah. honestly is why I maybe think of a different reading. And and if I were directing, which I would love to direct this play someday, <laughs> yeah. what a great piece of material. What mm-hmm. depth for a for a director to dig into that also doesn't have all the stigma that Death of a Salesman has. You can <laughs> yeah. really do some creative <laughs> things with this show. Anyway, if I were directing it, I might coach uh, the Kate character this way. So this is what she actually says. I'm also going to read the stage directions because I think that they're key as well. So what has happened is they found out that Joe's killed himself. Chris has come stumbling out of the house and he's clinging to Kate. And this is what she says. Don't, dear. 
Don't take it on yourself. Forget now. Live. Stage direction. Chris stirs as if to answer. Kate says, shh. Stage direction. She puts his arm down gently and moves towards the porch. She says, shh. And as she reaches the porch steps, she begins sobbing. So what's notable to me there is that they don't end in an embrace. She's not Mm -hmm. physically consoling him. She actually moves away from him back towards the house. Really, in terms of the power of their bodies, uh, abandoning him physically. Mm -hmm. She puts his arms down. He's clinging to her and she puts his arms down. So here's potentially an alternate reading. The subtext of don't take it on yourself, forget now, live. What if the subtext is that's what you did with Larry? That's (laughs) what you've been trying to do this whole time. Forget about us. You didn't didn't have allegiance to your father. You decided that the world mattered more than us. So go away. Mm -hmm. Go on. Get out of here. Forget about it. This is what you wanted. This is the result of your actions. Forget, live, do whatever you want. Right. Goodbye. Oof. You know, the, what if the subtext is, it's your fault. Goodbye. This yeah. is what you wanted. Yikes. It's a harsher end. <laughs> it's a harsher end. <laughs> but I honestly think it might be borne out in the in, in, in the story that we hear. Kate's not the kind of person to say, right, the, literally seconds after the husband right. shoots himself, forget about it, mm-hmm. right? She's the one that clung to the uh, desperate hope that her son might be alive for years, decrying anybody who would forget about him and right. move on with their lives. And we're supposed to believe that she's just suddenly a different person? No, I think yeah. she, I think it's accusatory. I think mm. it's one of those brilliant Arthur Miller moments where the words that he writes and the emotional reality of the scene are totally disconnected. <laughs> or, or actually, they're not really, right? Because right, they're integrally they're, connected. They, but... he's actually, what has actually happened is that he wrote words that mean what they mean at face value. Right. They're and just we're all not looking comforting. for like subtext. We're and stuff. looking for a comforting <laughs> subtext, and it's not there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good job, Arthur Miller. Well, That's probably where I would coach it. It's a it's a far crueler end. Yes, it is. <laughs> and, it, but, and the other thing that I like about it is that it the the final words of the play are Kate saying, "You know, Chris, you're not the good guy." Mm-hmm. You know, because there is a the Chris character has a little bit of sort of the perfect person in him, right? And and one of the crucial moments of the play is where he decides maybe I'm not so perfect and I'm not going to send my own dad to jail. Yeah. You're like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I sort of like that the end of the play, at least in my interpretation of those lines, casts <laughs> some shadow of blame on Chris for what's yeah. occurred. You know, you made this choice. You live with it. Mm-hmm. Look what and you did. Live away from me. Yeah. Yeah. Get thee gone. Huh. That that blew my mind at the end there. That's not something I <laughs> I considered. <laughs> that That's just brutal. Look, <laughs> well, I, you... yeah, it's I I I like it, and I, yeah. I I'd be interested to see it it played out that way. Very interestingly, I sent Jackson uh, a few days ago a picture of a set design that I saw for this show. Um, just as I was like Googling the show just for fun. And it was this incredible set design. I think Nottingham Playhouse off the top of my head is who did it. Um, If I'm wrong about that, I apologize. And the set design is the house and the yard, as you would imagine. But then the whole, what would be stage left is like 
a piece of ground that has yeah. been blown up and uprooted so that it's at an angle. It's like cur- the ground itself is curved up and tilting and there's the tree and you can see the roots sticking out of the ground like it was AstroTurf or something that they pulled up. And yeah. you see the roots and the tree at this angle sort of ominously teetering over the house. Mm-hmm. And I love that that image of like, this this household of people and things are all about to come crashing down. The world right. is tilted. There's even a scene where someone's like, I think it's Chris is sawing at the tree. So I was picturing that that set with with that going on would be very a lot higher stakes. Very uh, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't really dive much into this play as another sort of instance of Miller playing on Greek tragedy. Uh, obviously, that's all there. Um, mm-hmm. and, but we, we did that last week. So we did that last week. <laughs> we're looking yeah. at different things this week than we were last week. <laughs> there are very similar Greek tragic elements. Um, you know, obviously one of them being that like the whole family is cursed now as the result of somebody's <laughs> of, past of transgression. Yeah, that is slowly being brought to light. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. like a messenger who brings like a real letter that uh-huh. brings everything crashing down. I mean, there's some. There's definitely some Greek elements in the storytelling. Yep. Super. Super parallels but we're at the end of our time for that but we need to continue the conversation with you because clearly there's so much more so if you can see more of the parallels and you want to describe them to us feel free to do so on facebook instagram or twitter at no script podcast we'd love to keep talking about it with you these plays there's there's so many facets and and i find i find that as on whenever we end these there's always like oh man there's there there were more little things we could draw out and there's just not enough time in this format so please continue the conversation with us on the social medias or email noscriptpodcast at gmail.com Yes, if you like this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes, like we said, we're, we're three out of four through Miller Month, so be ready for Death of a Salesman next week. But if, if you've liked some of the other things that we've done, the other episodes where we've talked about great scripts, please share them on your social media. That's a huge help. Besides going to Patreon, which is a great way to help us, this is the other great way to continue this sort of push forward uh, of No Script the Podcast. So please share on your social media platform. You can find the podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. Also, please just tell people about the podcast. If you're listening, it's probably because you're a person that likes scripts, which means, based on how friendships work, you probably know other people that also have a similar affection for scripts. So please tell them about us. Let's continue to grow the listenership of uh, the storytelling and, and these great scripts. They deserve all the conversation they can get. Yeah, yeah. Well, we got one more week left of Miller Month. And we're we're ending with the most the most yeah, auspicious yeah. of them all. We, yeah, it's like, <laughs> oh man, there's this huge weight of it. Like, now we got to talk about death of a salesman. How many smart people in theater history have talked about death of a salesman that we got to we got to somehow have a conversation that doesn't sound like just two losers, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, although I suppose mercifully, there's been probably been a lot of dumb conversations around it too. That's true. So, I, so. I, I think we're 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 solid. Average. Yeah, we're now you got to shoot for that, that. Like, have like a really insightful conversation about <laughs> right. Death of a Salesman. We'll see. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a little nervous, a little about, nervous. about broaching Death of a Salesman, <laughs> cracking open those hallowed uh, script covers, and trying yes. to, trying to have a conversation. Well, 
Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to stay positive. Let's stay positive. It's gonna be great. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> Until we're coming back with you with that script next week. I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script the Podcast. See ya. Thank you.